0: asking, how many of you watch anything rated TVMA? Don't raise your hand. Don't do it. Don't do it. Probably most of us. Don't do it. Um, Just just remain uh, anonymous in what you want to share about that. But um, I got to be real with you. As I'm continuing to go through the book of Judges in preparation for sermons on a weekly basis, what I knew was the case um, is still overwhelming even for me. Because I read a chapter in Judges, and I'm like, I got to preach on that? Nobody's ever going to either take me seriously, or they're never going to come back to church. Because it's so brutal, and it's so vivid, and there's so much imagery to it. And the book of Judges, really, as I've said before, is our, the book of Judges is one of those books in the Bible... That you might yourself be contending with, or you might have had others use against you as a believer, wherever you're at, um, saying, how could God do such atrocious things? This is kind of one of those books, but my hope is that if you have not already seen it, you will continue to see week after week, I'm going to be annoyingly redundant in showing you how it is the exact opposite. The message is completely missed if you come to the conclusion, how could God do such things? When hopefully you will see, oh my goodness, I can't believe God would be so gracious. That's really the heart of what we're seeing and hope I see and hope you will see as we go through the book of Judges. So we've gone through some overarching contextual issues throughout uh, throughout this book following the first two chapters, and today we're actually going to get into some of the judges, the people that are famous for this book, Um, but the title of my message today is this, things are getting messy, things are getting messy, that's how I feel as I read this book, and that's how I feel as I realize how the modern equivalent to today nationally, globally, locally, it's still the case. Because of sin, things are getting messy, and they just keep getting messier. And yet, I, I, I cannot express to you enough how thankful I am for God and for the provision of His people. And I don't mean money. I mean you. I mean this place. I mean the body of Christ with Christ as the head and us as the parts, the members that make up the body of Christ. Because in spite of how messy things get in the world and even in our own lives, God is still good. And I'm thankful for his people. Because that gives life. So... I'll remind you of a point that I made last week that I'm probably also going to keep repeating amongst many things throughout this series. And here's the point. When people lose sight of God's grace, they lose sight of God and any sense of obligation to Him. I made the point last week that when we talk about the Mosaic Law, the Old Testament, and all the commands of God, they are certainly not the means to salvation, So we don't need to do the Mosaic law and all the commandments and all the do this and don't do that, do this, in order to be saved. That's what, they they were never meant to be that. What they were meant to be was a reminder that we are saved. God led the Israelites out of slavery, out of Egypt, and into the promised land. And all of those laws that he gave them was so that they would remember so that they would not lose sight. The practices, the sacrifices, the festivals, the do's, the don'ts, wasn't to save them, it was to remind them, you're saved, so live in it. Live in it. Don't go back. And we know the theme from the Israelites' mouths that represent their entire spiritual makeup. When things got hard, or things weren't going the way that they wanted them to go, if things got uncomfortable, you name it, they would say, oh! Oh! If only you had left us in Egypt, it would have been better for us to be in Egypt as slaves, as oppressed, as captives, when the reality was God had liberated them and he was leading them to the promised land, a land of provision with milk and honey an abundant land where they would be the leaders and people would follow them. But because things got difficult and they lost sight of God's grace what happens, they just want to go back. They want to go back. So, when people lose sight of God's grace, they lose sight of God and any sense of obligation to Him. So let's start reading Judges chapter 3, starting in the 7th verse, and it says this. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of the Cushan-Rishathaim, king of Aram Naharim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Mm -hmm. Othniel son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother who saved them. The spirit of the Lord came on him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Kushan rishathaim king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. So the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenez, died. So, first judge, mentioned in the book of Judges. It's short. It's a couple of verses. It doesn't give us a whole lot of information. It's just kind of some seemingly historical details. They were bad. God raises up a judge. Spirit of the Lord empowers him, he defeats the enemies, they experience peace. That kind of uh, outline that I just gave you is always the outline throughout this book. No matter how long it gets, it's they forget God, they do evil in his sight. So God says, all right, here you go, I'm giving you over to your enemies, we'll get to that in a second, Uh, sold them, all right, Uh, and then they cry out, God raises up a judge, judge delivers them, they experience peace. And then right back to square one. They go back to doing evil. All right, so let's just kind of talk about it right here, right now, based on this little uh, excerpt talking about Othniel. So first, um, they did evil and served the Baals and the Asherahs. I talked a little bit about this last week, and I'll just give you one more little uh, window, uh, a little bit more insight into what did this look like? What, what does this mean when it says that they did evil in the sight of the Lord and they served these gods. Last week I talked about how there was language used in scripture that talked about them walking in holy procession, carrying items that were uh, ritually representative of the gods. So kind of like, just imagine, I mean, I'm not Catholic, so for my recovering Catholics or my current Catholics that are here today, God bless you, um, a lot of times when there's a procession walking down the aisle, and the priest would walk down the aisle nothing wrong with that, but this was a very common ritual practice amongst all religions, and that's what the author in last week, chapter 2, was getting at, that the Israelites, they would walk in holy procession, carrying the banners or the idols for all to see that this is the God we serve, the Baal, the people of God, worshiping the false god, saying this is our God who has delivered us and has provided for us. Um, They would prostrate themselves, they would get on the ground in a in, in a literal form of humility and submission saying, Baal or Asherah, the false pagan gods of the land of Canaan, you are higher, you are greater, you are better than. And all the while, God is like, but I did all that for you. I delivered you. I've provided for you. I've promised for you. What's, seriously, like what, what's going on? So we see it repeated right here in this excerpt. Now, one more window that I want to give you about worship was regarding um, Ashtart. That's probably the most common understanding of the goddess that represents these places of worship, these Asherahs or these Asherah poles. It was in worship to the Canaanite god Ashtart. Um, This was the goddess, as I mentioned last week, of love and war. One of the main ways that this (coughs) goddess was worshipped was in cultic worship involving sexual intercourse. In the New Testament, with the god Aphrodite, interesting how they both have very similar names, but they're technically different gods. Uh, In in the city of Corinth, uh, upon the hill of the Acrocorinth, there was a temple for Aphrodite that was literally a temple filled with hundreds of prostitutes. And the way the people of the town would worship Aphrodite was they would ascend the temple. Many scholars uh, found archeological evidence saying that they would literally micro-shroom, they would micro-dose on shrooms. So they would get high and they would ascend the mountain in this spiritually enlightened state and then they would go and have orgies and sexual relations with prostitutes. And that's how they worshiped in the city of Corinth. This is almost identical just in a different land with a different name, a different people, and a different God, the same type of worship that the Israelites coming into the land of Canaan are exposed to. And here's kind of how we can contextualize this for fun. Uh, not really, but um, they go into the land of Canaan and they see, oh, you can worship God, your God, by having sex. And, and you get to go to church and you all just have sex together? Wow, that sounds fun. Tinder hasn't been working for me lately. So I'm going to go to church, and we're going to have some fun. That's what's happening right here. Not bashing Tinder, I'm, I'm just saying. That's what we're seeing right here. It's, it's kind of this idea of, hey, we can worship God like that, so I want to go to that church. And I kind of want to contextualize that to what we see a lot. I mean... Again, I don't know if you're here. Thank God you're here for the first time or you're coming here. I'm not bashing other churches at all with what I'm about to say. What I'm saying is that we have to be so careful that we don't start ascribing to God forms of worship that we think are really holy when they're not. They're just about what we want. And then we start saying, well, I'm going to go to that church because that church worships this way and they got this music and they got this ministry. It's like. What's that about? Is that about God or is that about? Whatever that means. (laughs) Yeah, mic drop. There you go. Um, Somebody's saying something here, I guess. So this is the start right here. They do evil and they worship the Baals and the Asherahs. And then God's response this is what I got uncomfortable with when I first read it, and then it made so much sense. It says, God sold them. I think, about like, you bought them out of slavery, so why would you give them back into it? And then I realized, duh. Number one, he has every right. Let's, let's, I don't want to brush over that fact because it makes us uncomfortable, because then it makes us think we're property. Yes, every human being is property of the Creator, And if you don't like that, that's between you and God. I'm not going to try and make that more palatable because for me, that's everything. And I'll I'll get to that and show you why that's that's life. Man, that is life. That's not oppression. That's life when God is my master. Um, But I also want to go on and say and, and, and help us recognize God is giving them exactly what they want. Because think about it. God says, I've purchased you out of slavery to Egypt and now you follow me, Mosaic law, here's the way to continue to just live in the salvation that I have given you. But then they see the way that other nations are worshiping their gods that they willfully submit themselves to as their owners. These Baals and these, Asher, and these Ashtars. And they say, I like that way of worship more. So I'm going to go after those gods, and God says, okay, fine. This is what you want? Here, I'm signing you over. Here you go. You're now their property. See how well it works out for you. This isn't God being arbitrary. This isn't God being vindictive. This is God giving the people exactly what they want. They want to worship God. Another God, another way. And God says, okay, well, this is the way that we go about doing that. Transferring ownership. You want them to be your God? They're your God. But guess what that makes you then? My enemy. Because I told you, you shall have no other God before you. I am your God. And I love you, and I bought you, and I have led you into this land flowing with milk and honey. I've given you everything. Everything. But if you still want that, okay, fine. But guess what? It means now you're my enemy and I'm gonna treat you accordingly. So here's just the first point that I wanna give you. We all serve someone. If you're here, please don't fall into the ignorant, arrogant trap that you're not a slave to something because at a philosophical, spiritual, value system, idealism, you, me, all of us We all serve someone. It just depends on what God that is that you serve. Are you serving Jesus, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the God who loves you, who laid down his life for you and just asked you to trust him? Not for money, not for a certain level of perfection. He just asked that you trust him and follow him, be obedient to him. That's it. Do you you serve that God or do you serve sex? Do you serve drugs? Do you serve addiction? And I don't mean struggle with addiction. I mean, I'm going to continue to live in this lifestyle because it's what I want to do, and I like it, and nobody's going to tell me otherwise. Do you serve the idol of family above all else? And I mean family above God. Your children's college tuition, sports, dating. Is your career your God? We all serve someone. You're you're not going to not be in service to someone. And if you think you're serving yourself, I promise you, I promise you, there will come a day when you see there's a God behind all this. There is a devil at work. And man, he likes to use things against me. We all serve someone. So then the last part that we see that I just want to hone in on is... Verse 9. In verse 9, it says, but when they cried out. So God says, okay, you want to go against me? Fine, then you get to serve those gods. Now I'm your enemy and he raises up an oppressor to go against them. Fine. You want to be a part of the land of Canaan? I'm working against the Canaanites. So now I'm working against you. And as they're under oppression, they're back in slavery. What they wanted They cry out. And then it says that God raised up a judge, but what we need to see is the significance of that phrase in Hebrew, verse 9, cried out. If you recall back in chapter 2, I pointed out that there was a section when an angel came from Gilgal to the land that they called Boakim, the place of weeping, where the angel reminded them about how they had left God and started serving all these other gods. And it said the people lamented, And they cried out, and then they purified themselves, and they made sacrifices to God. And I made a point that I'm recalling to our memory now, that that was the last and only time throughout all this book that we see true repentance. Because right here it says they cried out, but the Hebrew for this has nothing to do with repentance. It's simply a cry for help. It's simply saying, God, I hate this. It's uncomfortable. Get me out of it. And there's a big difference between that and the idea of repentance. So the point is, we often cry to God for help, but are we willing to take responsibility? All right, yeah. All right. Are you and I willing to take responsibility? God is a gracious God, and he's a good God. And we see, we see right here that in spite of the attitude of their heart, he still helps them. He still comes to their rescue even though the motivation of their heart was impure. So once again, we serve a good God. But we need to be honest with ourselves and ask ourselves the questions, what's the attitude of our heart? Because if the attitude of our heart is simply, God, get me out of this and not, God, I recognize the error of my way. Forgive me of my sin and please God and your graciousness that I don't deserve. Will you help me if it's not that, but it's the former God that sucks, get me out of it then the book of Judges is going to be our life story. We're just going to go around and around and around, and God's going to come to our rescue, and we're going to have some peace for a little bit of time in our life, and then right back to square one. Back into slavery to idols, to the enemy. Now, what I do want to be clear about when I talk about this difference between just, like, give me what I want versus repentance, I'm not talking about when I say repentance self-loathing. And I'm, I'm speaking from my own personal experience in my walk, and I share it with you if it resonates with anybody. If it doesn't, cool, um, just give me a second. When I say we often cry to God for help, but are, un, but are we willing to take responsibility, I've noticed that for myself, my form of repentance is to self-loathe. It's simply to say, you suck, you suck, you suck, you suck, you suck, you suck, you suck. And I've realized that what that is, is simply an unhealthy coping mechanism that's trying to measure up my own holiness and say, oh, if I can say this enough times, if I can tell myself that I suck enough times, then I, I'm back to being holy with God. Like I start here, you suck, you suck, you suck, you suck, okay, now I'm there. I feel so bad that I must be holy with God right now. And that's not Repentance. And again, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not preaching at you. I'm sharing my own experience. And if it resonates for you, awesome. Um, if it doesn't, take it, store it away to help somebody else in the future. Repentance is being able to be honest about the fact that, yeah, you know, I, I, I'm nothing without God. And I have a responsibility to repent before God. And he's given me all that I need to do so. So I'm going to do it. Yes. God, here I am a sinner in need of your grace. And I've seen you do it before and I know you'll do it again. So Lord, here I am. Help me to overcome my unbelief. Help me to overcome my addiction. Help me to overcome my wickedness. Help me, God. That's repentance. And then actively seeking to do that 180. Not just say, okay, and then go right back into that sin. Like I said my prayer, I'm good to go. So you take that and you do with it as you will. But the bottom line is we do need to take some responsibility. It's not God's fault. He's a gracious God. So how are you crying out to God is the question. What's the motivation and the attitude of your heart? And I hope it's repentance. I really do because it's going to give you life. So verse 12, we're going to pick up and we're going to read judge number two. That's it. That's it. For Othniel, that's all we got from him. The author is not trying to give us an extensive amount of detail. In fact, other than a a quick little uh, interruption with Shamgar, uh, who's gonna come after Ehud, uh, every single judge that we see, their story gets a little bit longer and longer and longer and longer and more detailed until we get to Samson, who's really the last judge that we see in the book. And then the author continues to give detail. And what we need to see as we go through this book is that the author is not trying to give us how-tos and how to be a better uh, moralist, how to live better with the Lord. Um, He's not doing that. He's also not trying to give us a a, a long list of how some judges are weaker or better or stronger than others. In fact, what he's doing is he's saying, okay, here's the history of Israel, and I'm going to give you more detail as time goes on and shows you that in spite of every." Unique person and judge and individual that God raises up out of His grace, they keep ending back right where they started, and it's not a superhero story. It's really more of a other than a few like Othniel, he's 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 good. There's as far as we know, there's nothing off about him. The bro, uh, was it the brother of Caleb, a younger brother of Caleb, who was a good guy, who was one of the only two uh, in the book of deuteronomy and and joshua who were part of the original 12 spies that came back and said no trust god also caleb means dog he was not an actual israelite which is really ironic that a non-israelite was the one that trusted god which seems to be all over scripture not the people of god the pagans who convert and trust god are the ones with bigger faith interesting anyway i'm getting off track So that's Othniel. Now we're jumping to Ehud, judge number two that we see here. And Ehud is a gory, fun story. I'm going to be real. I have fun with this. I get a lot of laughs out of this story. This is like the TVMA stuff. So here we go. Verse 12. Again, I hope you're hearing this. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did evil... The Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Again, the Israelites cried out, same word for, this sucks, get me out of this, God, not repentance. Again, they cried out, to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon king of Moab. Now, Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a cubit long, about eight inches, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon king of Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who had carried it. But on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon and said, Your majesty, I have a secret message for you. The king said to his attendants, Leave us! And they all left. And then Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from God for you. And as the king rose from his seat, I'll tell you why I'm laughing, after, uh, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade, and his bowels discharged. we'll get to that, Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. Man! some real imagery going on in my head right now. Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. They waited to the point of embarrassment. But when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their Lord fallen on the floor, dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. "'He passed by the stone images and escaped to Sarah. "'When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet "'in the hill country of Ephraim and the Israelites. "'When he arrived, and the Israelites went down "'with him from the hills, with him leading them. "'Follow me,' he ordered, "'for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands.' "'So they followed him down and took possession "'of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab, "'and they allowed no one to cross over.' At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. No one escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 40 years. There's so much here. Um, There's so much information here that I'm just, I'm going to give you, and I'm not going to make points about it. I'm just going to give it to you. Um, So first off, again, the cycle has repeated. King named Eglon rises up. Eglon Literally translated from the Hebrew, kind of has a dual meaning to it. It means baby calf or cow. But it also comes from a root word in Hebrew that means very round and very fat. So, his name essentially means fat cow. Yep. It's a big dude, yep. cuz cows are already big animals. And it's a fat cow. Not a skinny cow, not a lean cow. One of those cows that just keeps horking it in and just consuming and consuming and consuming. He's a big boy. This is who now subjects the Israelites to oppression and enslavement. And they get Ehud, who we don't really know anything about other than he's a Benjamite and he's very skilled with his left hand. And they say, Ehud, we want you to take the tribute, maybe the tax or could have been just a a gracious act of subservience to their king in order to be in good standing with him, payment. And he brings it with his entourage, and they go and they give it, and then they're on their way back, and, and they stop, and Ehud goes back. Now, Ehud. Ehud is of the tribe of Benjamin and we know they are very skilled warriors from later in this book, at the end of it, and in the book of Samuel. They are probably the greatest warriors of the tribes of Israel. Um, These guys were like the Spartan 300s, extremely well-trained. If you've heard a message on Ehud that talks about he was disabled, that's really been discounted thoroughly. It makes for good and fun preaching, saying God can really use your handicaps and your weaknesses, which I believe he can, but we need to be clear, that's, that's not what it's about. This man was trained to be proficient in his left hand. Um, the actual Hebrew word means uh, wh- when he was left-handed, it has this idea that his other hand was bound, meaning his right hand was bound behind his back so that he would be proficient as hundreds of other Benjamites would grow to be proficient in the same manner of warfare. So he was a refined weapon of warfare and the Israelites knew what they were doing when they recruited him to go in and, take care of business with Eglon. We don't know anything else about him. It doesn't say that he was a subservient servant of the Lord. It doesn't say that he was worshiping God when the Lord found him and said, hey, Ehud, my faithful servant, come and I'm going to use you for great things like, like Moses was called and, and, and other people are called in the Bible. He's just this weapon of warfare that God says, All right, I'm going to use him. I'm gonna use him. So he makes his way and gives the tribute, and they're on their way back. And then he senses sir the, the entourage that came with him, and he stops at Gilgal. Do you remember what Gilgal represents? We talked about it last week and I made mention of it again. It's where the angel came from and met the Israelites, where they repented. But the angel came from Gilgal, and this was the first place that the Israelites landed when they crossed over from the wilderness into the land of Canaan in the book of Joshua and it was here that they, God had once again split apart the Jordan, just like he did the Red Sea, and they crossed over on dry land, a supernatural provision, in order for them to get across the water safely, and now they're on this land, and God says, have every head of the tribe of each, uh, every head of each of the tribes take a stone and erect uh, a, a monument, a memorial, so that All generations from here on will remember that it is me, God, Yahweh, who has led you out of the wilderness and into the promised land on dry ground. Do it so that no generation will ever forget. That's one of the things that happened at Gilgal. Also, it was the first place that they celebrated Passover. The remembrance that, hey, God led you out of Exodus, one of their many feasts that they had to practice, they practiced it at Gilgal. So it represents already so much for them. Covenant covenant renewal, I got cow on the mind. Covenant renewal. So much happened at Gilgal that was meant to be a reminder of who God is and what he has done for the Israelites. And now Ehud has passed on his way, and now on his way back is there once more, Gilgal. And it says specifically in the scripture that while he was there, he passed the stone idols Mm -hmm. that were there. And this is not referring to the stone altar that God had told the Israelites to erect. It's in reference to pagan altars. I don't know what happened to Ehud and what was going through his mind, and I'm not going to pretend to know. All I know is that when I read it, I'm frustrated. Because Ehud, on his way as God's servant, is passing the very place that God first gave the Israelites as a reminder. Don't forget what I've done for you. Don't forget who I am. Otherwise, now Ehud, a trained assassin, is on his way to murder a man in the dark of night, and he passes that place that was meant to be a reminder of how good God is that is now covered in idolatrous shrines. And I think it's a, it's a really profound image that can tell us a lot of things, and for example, one of those is, are the places and the realities of who God is and how he's meant to be worshipped truly pure or have they been inundated and demoralized by other idols that we've allowed in? Is God truly the center of your life? Or, as we see here, a representation of syncretism, oh, we'll keep God here and we'll add a whole lot more. That's kind of the image that we see here. I, don't, I can't say anything to Ehud. I don't know what he was thinking. I don't know if it evoked in him anything. All I know is what I see written here by the author. So Ehud goes back. And this is where it just gets really funny to me. Because he shows back up into Eglon's throne room. And he says, Eglon, I got a message for you. All right? But here's what's fascinating that the author's trying to help us get at. Eglon is an idiot. He's not just a fat cow. He's an idiot. And he's really trying to let us see that. Because he tells all of his courtroom to leave. Why would you do that? That makes no sense in any setting. You don't know what this guy is all about. They likely searched him. That's why the author is trying to get the point. This man was sent here for a reason because normally, commonly for any warrior, you were right-handed and you would draw your sword from the opposite side so your sword would be on your left and people would be able to see and maybe even guess that. I don't know if they did pat-downs the way that they do now where they're going all the way up and all around and in every crack and crevice, but... He was a man that was very uncommon and was not normal and skilled in warfare. And so his small custom blade was strapped to his right thigh, Mm -hmm. hidden, likely. So he was there, we know, for a reason as we read. But for some reason, Eglon just says, everybody leave. I don't know what he's got to say, or maybe he's got something for me. Maybe he brought me a little delicacy, a dish that I don't want to share with anybody. Because, you know, he's a big cow and big and okay. So he says, everybody get out. And then it says they went into an upper room, and I don't have a diagram to show you, but it's very common in, in, in court, or courtrooms, in, in throne rooms, that there was also a hidden chamber that was behind the, the main king's court, that you would ascend some stairs and go into. Now, it could have represented a number of things, but a very common archeological find is that it was a bathroom. It was the throne room, with the throne, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Yep. And so they go in there. And this man proceeds to take a dump. Mm-hmm. That's what's happening. So he says, c- c- come on, let's go, to, let's go to my secret place. And they go up the stairs, and he sits on his throne of thrones and starts to relieve himself. And Ehud one more time says... I have a message this time from God for you. And it makes Eglon so intrigued that the text says he literally leans forward. So he's sitting down on his throne, leans forward, and Ehud comes closer and he stabs him right in the belly. And it says this is what I was laughing for it says his bowels discharged. So we know that that can happen for a dead person. But literally in this setting, he's hovering over the toilet, gets stabbed, actually relieves himself. And then the dagger closes, the fat closes up over the dagger. So he's like, oh, there it is. It's gone. He's like, I'm not getting that thing back. And the doors are locked. This is where it gets really good. The doors are locked and they stay locked. There's only one way out for Ehud. Down the crapper, down the plumbing. And he jumps down. It's usually this little tiny square cut out chute in stone. He jumps down that thing. And then he finds himself back in the open court and walks through. And the author actually says something interesting. Um, Ehud went out to the porch of the doors after you know, uh, wait with me while you gotta wait. Okay, no, it's not there. It's a fascinating story. What, what what is this? Is this a joke? Is this real? No. This is this is very real. What the author is trying to get at is that, in spite of how stupid this guy is and how clever Ehud is, it was this guy that was dominating the Israelite people. This fat, stupid, literally craps himself as he's dummied into trickery and dies in the bathroom, murdered in cold blood. That's who the Israelites were slaves to. This is not supposed to elevate the deeds of Ehud. It's fascinating, but it's, right, it's like, what is this? What is this scene? Dude gets murdered in the bathroom by, like, Assassin's Creed or John Wick type of dude like what is this this is a joke and that's who they were slaves to what a joke what a joke now what's fascinating is you go on and you read through the end of this it says Ehud goes and he rallies some of the men of Israel and he says the Lord has given Moab into your hands your enemies into your hands which God has always said and always given them and it says, at that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. So now there's a, there's a reversal here where their king is a guy who is a fat, stupid cow, now shows the difference between their men of warfare are strong and vigorous. They're not chumps. 10,000 of them. And whatever band Ehud was leading, because obviously it wasn't all of Israel and all of their armies, it was just a band of them. They defeated them. Verse 29 is a reminder of what can happen when we are under the ownership of God rather than another, where we can no longer be slaves to fat, stupid pigs. And now we can be reminded of what it means to be a child of God. To be owned by God and yes. what He will do for us. That's right. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Ooh, hallelujah. I did forget to point out the one other funny part of the scene, so let's backtrack a little bit. Um, his court official guards—they're outside of the door, and they—they they realize the door's locked, and they understand he's probably relieving himself. He's sitting on his throne of thrones, and they're so nervous. Because imagine this, your husband, your wife, your maybe you don't care parents if you do it to your kids. I know my dad would just bang on the door. Hey, you've been in there long enough. And I'd get scared and I'd be done real quick. And these guys knock on the door nervous. They're embarrassed, the text says, because literally he's on the can. They're like, "King, King, you okay in there? Did you fall in? You all right? Don't take our heads off for this. We're just making sure you're okay. Finally, they go in and they see that he's dead. Anyway, the last point of of this portion of this judge that we need to point out is back to Gilgal. So Ehud is on his way back and he passed, the the, the narrator talks about it and, and covers it, saying they passed Gilgal once more and once again he points out where the stone idols had been erected. And that's all that the author says about it. And I think once again, it is a powerful reminder for us that in spite of everything that God had done and once again had done, the narrator saying, look, the place that was supposed to be a reminder of who God is and what he has done is still filled with false idols. It's, it's, it's the little cliffhanger at the end of the movie that tells you, what you're going to expect for part two or part three. They never got rid of the idols. God delivered them from a stupid fat cow of a man that they had no business being subservient to, that if they had continued to follow God, they would have taken care of like that, which once God raised up a judge and they went in the name of the Lord, God did exactly that against 10,000 strong and vigorous of their enemies. Nobody could stand against God. And yet, they didn't do away with the pagan idolatry. But, got a lot of butts for you, including eglons. But, it does say that the Israelites had peace for 80 years. Likely two generations. Two generations. Kids and grandkids following these events. They had peace for 80 years. What does this tell you? Seriously, what does this tell you? about God. He is a good God. He is a good God. Yes, he is. What a gracious God that yeah. we serve. Thank you, Jesus. I mean, really, do, do you get it? Because we just, we I, I know it seems so small and so trivial and so, yeah, I know, he's a gracious God. No, do you understand, based on everything that we just read, what a gracious God. Not How could God ever do that to the Israelites? How could he allow them to be imprisoned and enslaved once more to other foreigners, to pagan people, to a stupid fat cow? How could he ever do such an atrocious thing? How on earth could God be so gracious to a people that continually give credit to false gods and continually turn their backs on the God who delivered them, who loved them, who gave everything for them. How could they turn their backs on God? And the author is showing us and they're still not repenting. They cried out, God raised up a deliverer, show them once again how good and gracious he is and Gilgal remains unpurified. Still filled with pagan idolatry. And the cycle is going to repeat. What a good God we serve. And may we never take His grace for granted. But would we honor Him. And thank Him and worship Him as He deserves to be worshipped what we think is, is the right way to worship him. Listen, worshiping God at times can be so hard. It can cause you to feel isolated from people in your life, friends and family, because you're going to give up things or you're going you're gonna to share things that you say, I believe and I just, I can't be a part of that. I can't accept that anymore. And it's going to be hard. There's no question to it. But remember who God is and what he has done for you and what he is willing and waiting and ready to give you and do for you in eternity. You gotta trust him. We all serve someone. What's the attitude of your heart when you cry out to God. And I'll remind you, when people lose sight of God's grace, they lose sight of God and any sense of obligation to Him. I don't know about you, but my life's pretty messy. And I know it has the possibility of getting way messier. And at times it might get really messy. But may I never forget what a good God that I serve, and may I never take Him for granted. Would you stand with me on your feet this morning? Jesus loves you. God is gracious. And he's not a chump. Amen? So let me pray for you. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray right now for my brothers and sisters in this place. God, I pray for their hearts and I pray for their minds. Jesus, I pray today that you would help them. Help them to have a true heart of repentance and to fiercely preserve, fiercely preserve their memory, their understanding, and their practice of how good you are. And may we never forget how gracious you are. We thank you and we praise you. And in Jesus' name, the people of God said, Amen. 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 Well, God bless you. Have a great week, and uh, we'll see you either in love groups or next Sunday.